Welcome to episode 38 of the Going For Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. On today's podcast, I welcome Lewis Uncle Lou Buckvich to the show. Uncle Lou is the founder and the president of Stealth Outdoors, originators of stealth strips, cam buckle covers, smoke camo, and a whole lot more. In today's episode, Lou and I discuss the latest happenings at Stealth Outdoors. We recap some of Lou's Western adventures, Lou's first experience with leasing a hunting property this year, and plans for Stealth Outdoors moving forward. Uncle Lou is a great storyteller, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode as much as I did. Before we get started, in this episode, Uncle Lou and I discuss a discount code to get 25% off smoke camo at Stealth Outdoors. After we recorded the podcast, Lou decided to make that discount site-wide with no coupon code required. So head on over to www.stealthoutdoors.com to check out the sale and to find some last-minute stocking stuffers for your favorite hunter. And now, on to the podcast. All right, today on the show, I'm joined by Uncle Lou. Uncle Lou, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to have you on. It's been uh, a minute since we talked, so it'll be good to catch up. And never been on my podcast. I know you've been on some others, so be good to introduce people. Um, I think a lot of people are going to know who you are, but for those that don't, give us a quick intro and who you are and what you do. Um, my name is Lou, Louis Bukovic, and I run Stealth Outdoors. We make stealth strips and a little bit of miscellaneous items smoke camo and um i used to hunt now i just <laughs> run my business <laughs> so lou i think a lot of people especially in the mobile community are already using your products i've been using your products you'd have to check your order log but i think i ordered my first stealth strips probably a decade ago probably around 2013 do you still have them I actually, the only reason I don't is because I sold that set of sticks. And this is a true story. We didn't talk about this in advance, but I had a set of Lone Wolf, the original, you know, three-step single tube climbing sticks and the yep. holes on the steps were wearing out, but the stealth strips were fine. That's a true story. I And I've talked to, I mean, we, we did get lucky. I mean, when you, when you create a product, you never know how long it's going to last. I mean, if I were, if I were smart, like Bill Gates, I would have figured out how to make it fall off your stand in like three and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd have to buy new or we, we send the update out and, 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 you know, redo your, whatever your license and all that. But um, no, it, it's, it, we get a lot of positive feedback on its durability and its longevity. And so we've embraced that and we've, we've run with it. Right. Yeah. Great products. And I've used, uh, I know when the buckles were first becoming a thing, I used enter tubes for a while and there was all sorts of stuff going on with uh, kayak yak covers and whatever, but now you've got your own product, the buckle silencer. And I think that one, it's a lot safer. The enter tubes, uh, once or twice on me, they, they were so tight, they would push my strap release button and that got a little sketchy once or twice in the buckle silencer. That's got plenty of room, a lot easier to get your thumb in and out of there. So that's a great product too. So I've been using those since those came out and, uh, I don't know. Just like your products, like what you do. I've always had great customer service. So, and you've been a supporter of this podcast since it started. When when I had no business having a sponsor at all, you were glad to help me out. So I appreciate that also. Well, I loved what you what your premise was. You left Michigan, and and I love Michigan, and you're from here. I moved here in 1990, and I love the state. Um, but what your whole deal of what you were doing was 
going for broke. You were going to move to Montana and quit your job and try and hunt. And I don't think it quite worked out like that for you. You want me to pause in case you needed, in case you needed to delete that? No, that's fine. The, what with the real, but, but it's, that but was the plan. Weird. That was it's, the plan. What, what happened is uh COVID happened probably right or right around the time that plan was going to take off. And that got real sketchy for a lot of reasons. So decided no, I should I probably it. keep health insurance and the steady income. And it, uh, then I bought a house and that really put a, a damper on it. So here we are it's now. Hard. It's hard. I get a lot of people, you know, that like, Hey, I'm going to do a YouTube thing or I got a YouTube thing. And how do you do it? You know? And it's like, well, it's hard. I always, and you and I had some conversations in the early days. How are you going to monetize it? Yeah. And you remember one time I even suggested you take such great photography out West there. You're good with a camera and you've got picturesque vistas out there or views, whatever you want to call them. Uh, didn't mean to act like I knew another language there, but um, I said, you should make a calendar. You remember that? That was one of our earlier conversations, but it's so tough to do it. And how do you monetize things? Yeah. And it's tough to scale. I think with podcasts, especially like, I mean, it's great to have the support of, uh, so you and then Dan and Mario from Beast Gear, they sponsor the show as well. Um, and, but, but you're not, you're not making a living on that. And that's, uh, nothing against you or Beast Gear. It's just what the, uh, what the audience is and what people are willing to pay, unless you're a meat eater or something, you're, you're not living off advertisers and it's, Exactly. And I say that to a lot of people, like unless you're Joe Rogan and you said meat eater, so potato, potato, sure. um, you're not going to make it just on sponsors on, on a podcast. So how are you going to monetize it? And, and it's, it's, it's an interesting conversation. Yeah. So if you're starting a podcast or a hunting channel and you already don't have a huge name, you have to do it because you like it because you like helping people and there's, there's not any money in it. I'm here to tell you, there's not any money in it. <laughs> they call that a labor of love. Yeah, so exactly. I, I was in a previous business. So I, my, my background is I, I, I'm, I was a geologist a long time ago and I got in the environmental business because when I graduated college in 1990, oil patch was kind of dead and the environmental stuff was, was firing up. So I, I, my college ran a field camp program out in the South Dakota school of mines. I'm from Illinois. I went to Eastern Illinois. And I met my wife out there. She was from Detroit. That's how I ended up in Michigan. Met a woman. I've said for years, we're still married today. You've been to the house. We're still here. Um, I moved here for a woman, but I stayed here for the weather. I love Michigan. So we talked earlier about uh, Stealth Outdoors and some of the things you're doing. I think people are probably most familiar with Stealth Strips. That's one of your main products. But you do have some other products. And looks like you're sporting one right now, which is your Stealth Camo. And you... Uh, you sent me a shirt early in the year, earlier in the year and a jacket also, and I did try the jacket out. So this fall, so is that something you're looking to do more of? And I'd like to know what's new at Stealth Outdoors as far as products. Uh, it's holidays. You got any sales going on or any updates you can share with us? There's so much going on. You just do about four questions in there. First, you said st uh, stealth camo, which is smoke camo. Oh, geez. That's okay. It's easy to, to tongue twist. Um, so we did the smoke camo. Was that 2020? I think we did it during the pandemic. Sounds fun right. project. I'm not a clothing designer, but it's fun to create things. I did it out of the name. Um, I think, uh, I think I always tell people that you either, you, you like a camo pattern that you look at. Everybody has their own preferences, right? And the hunting world needed another camo pattern about as much as Tom Brady needed another Super Bowl ring. 
but I stare <laughs> at camo all day and it just happens. So I made smoke camo and, and this is it. And we have stuff on our website and I might do to jump to, I think one of your later questions, I, I just emailed my web designer. I am thinking about doing a uh, discount code for some smoke. We just have the shirts and the coats. Um, and uh, I think they're high quality. I think they're well-priced, but I'm still willing to do a discount because we have a little bit left. I kind of do clothing anymore as like limited runs because we're not a camo manufacturer. We're not a clothing manufacturer. Our bread and butter is the stealth strips. Um, and now that you've talked about, is there a discount code? I think I'll just apply it to everything. When are you going to make this live? This will probably go live in two days. So today is the 13th, okay. so probably the 15th. So we'll run it for a, a couple days because then we're up against Christmas. So for a Christmas special, um, I texted her. I texted her, my web designer, um, coupon code going for broke. So your web channel, and if All you right. want to put that up afterwards, feel free. And we're going to do twenty five percent off on the shirts and the and the the fleece line coats. There's nothing quieter. Listen, if you don't buy it because you don't like the pattern, you aren't going to upset us because there's a lot of patterns I don't like. Um, there's patterns I do like. But um, we'll do 25% off going for broke, and we'll, we'll just do it across the board for a cup. We'll trickle it into next week, and um, and that's what we'll do. Well, that's awesome. That's not something we talked about in advance, so I appreciate that, Lou. And I've seen a lot of good feedback online with the smoke, especially for guys that are hunting like hardwood timbers, like beech trees, aspens and stuff with the grays and especially from a tree stand. And, and I really like it for mid to later season when the foliage starts dropping off. It's a really good pattern. We tried, and I know there's probably a lot to cover here, so I won't go too deep into it, but we tried to make an all season, all terrain pattern. And I tried not to make it ugly. Now, some people look at it and go, that's ugly, but some people, we get some, you know, we obviously get good feedback from people that like it. You like what you like, like I said earlier. But I think it's skylines as well as anything because we have kind of a gray base. Yeah, but I, agree. I went turkey. I went turkey hunting in it this year. I really think there's not a lot of green, but I truly believe you do not need a lot of green. Greens to the human eye. But when the foliage is out, it's just like in a shadow. You don't need dark colors when you're in the shade, right? Things right. just naturally get darker. With greens out, when when the canopy is out you don't need a lot of green green is naturally occurring and when you put a green shield over this and there's some greens in it it's it, i did it turkey hunting and i felt like they couldn't see me any better than if i was wearing an asat or a predator or a i mean pick your camo sorry sure sure so lou we talked about stealth outdoors let's shift gears here because this was interesting to me i remember seeing a post on the hunting beast forum about it this year, for the first time, you did a hunting lease, and uh, <laughs> a lot of guys on on the beast are uh, diehard public land hunters. There's plenty of guys that hunt private land too, and but I think there's less people that lease. So I'd like to know your experience. One, what prompted you to join a lease? How'd that go? And would you do it again? Would you learn? What prompted me to do the lease was I have a limited amount of time during our busy season. Is obviously hunting season. And I'm very involved in the business. It's I'm, I'm involved in day to day. So it, it was the lease was closer. I've been hunting the Huron National Forest public the public forest up north for a couple decades. Um, and and in the early 2000s, I did get access to a couple pieces of private property around me here. But I primarily hunted those two pieces that got over hunted horribly, uh, and then 
I started hunting the national forest um, and public land around here. That's, that's, that's been my hunting. And I've got um, a, a lot of lack of success um, to, to prove that I public hunt because I'm not as good as like a Dan Enfold or somebody that scouts you around. So this lease popped up. My neighbor was involved in this lease, of, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, him and his son. And so his nephew, uh, George, and another guy, Russell, they are big buck killers. And you ought to see some of the stuff they've killed. And they primarily do leasing. Well, Russell got caught up on some bigger bucks. And George, who was in on the lease with him, he, he contacted my neighbor, my good friend, Ron. Um, he, contact, he contacted his uncle, my neighbor and good friend, Ron. And he said, hey, for 500 bucks, you guys want to get in on Calhoun. Now, we're 10 miles from Jackson County. If you've ever, if you've ever heard anything about Michigan, we got a lot of complainers here. Um, love the state love the people, but we complain about everything, the weather, the, right. You, you were here. <laughs> yeah. We don't have enough big bucks, but we have 190, 200 inch bucks every year getting shot. And they're mostly out of the Southern tier counties. Right. Yeah. So with lack of time and having a part, you know, to pick up their part of the lease for the end of the season for 500 bucks a piece for a thousand bucks to throw in, I spent more on a pair of boots. I have the same boots you do. So I'm like, how do I not spend 500 bucks to have a chance at a giant when I haven't scouted? They've got all the cameras. So I'm in, right? Um, I didn't get an opportunity. I wish I would have sent you some pictures so you could have put them on the screen. George, who's been on the lease for eight years, he put on a clinic. And man, now you want to get into the learning a lot. Um, I had some horrible shooting. I didn't see any big bucks. We got three, bu uh, three deer. No, George shot three, and Ronnie shot a kind of a scrubby buck, my net, my neighbor. But George shot two good bucks. One probably wasn't up to his standards, but would have been my neighbor in mine's probably best ever. And then he shot a really good buck on the on the last evening, and then he shot a doe to top it off. Um, I actually had the good fortune of it was along the St. Joe River in Calhoun County. I got a strap on. Uh, I was not the youngest, George, uh, little George. Um, he's a big guy. I call him Little George because his dad was Big George. Um, he shot a buck across the river, and I volunteered to go across and waders. So I'm in chest waders getting across the St. Joe River. So I did get to drag a buck across the St. Joe River this year. Yeah, that's exciting. Which was really cool. And we got a little bit of pictures on that. But his first buck was just a solid eight-pointer. And then uh, that was Wednesday, I believe, was the opener. Thursday, I missed a couple shots. Uh, nothing else happened Friday night. Um, George shot a doe and then a really solid buck, probably a one thirties. I, I, I wish I would have emailed you the picture. You could put them on the screen, but I got a tailgate pick of his stuff. Do you want me to try and text it or, or don't bother with trying to get a pickup? No, you can send them and uh, I can edit them in after the fact. Oh, I'll do that. I thought I'd say, I keep thinking we're live. I don't yeah. know. I'm so used to doing live podcasts. Okay. Um, great experience. Uh, had a great time. Um, not that it matters, but another part of the reason I went, um, at, towards the end there, uh, George, who's about 10 years younger than me and I'm 55, he lost one of his daughters this year, one of his twin daughters. And I just kind of wanted to go, you know, spend some time with him. Sure. And he, he's a great hunter and to watch how he picked apart the least, you know, the whole pressure thing. That's what we talk about on public land and one sit and done. And it was kind of just the way we attacked the property because I mentioned the St. Joe River and it was along the river. But just the way we would sit around at night and like there's only five, six stands and it's just a lot. It's only 115 acres. And so 
And then finally, towards the end, they're like, okay, we need to go to the corner because they're all pushed down there. And then my neighbor, Ron, got an opportunity at a, at a pretty good buck, and he didn't take it because he said by the time the deer flashed on him. But I, it was just interesting to watch people with uh, cell cams, and, and, and they did put a food plot in, even though it's ag. Um, it, it was just interesting to watch how he dissected it. I, I, I don't know that I want to spend a bunch of time about what I learned from George, but I learned there's some strategy to private land too, right? It's not all just the oh, sure. private land people don't know what they're doing. I mean, they do. Yeah. It's not like the big bucks are just walking around in the open on the private land either that <laughs> it's still deer hunting. Yeah. And, and, the, and he put in the most time and he got the best results. Imagine that kind of like, kind of like public land stuff. He, who, has the most knowledge and the most scouting in does the best, right? Yeah, and that is a great area of the state. I'm borderline uh, rain man when it comes to remembering things about big bucks. And I remember specifically, and this is probably, we could Google the article, but probably 2011, 2010, somewhere in there, a guy that was working with me at the time, his brother lived down by the St. Joe River, and he actually found two really big bucks. One of them, I'd have to go back and look at the article, but... One of them was a non-typical and it was probably 150 inch deer and they got tangled up and ended up drowning in the St. Joe river. He was steelhead fishing and he found him. So that is a good area of the state for big bucks. You think the steelhead run that far up, up the St. Joe river into Calhoun County? I don't know about that far. I don't know exactly where he was, but he was on the St. Joe river in the, the Southwest part of the state. Because we're, we're Southwest to almost central South right there where we are. Cause we were 10 miles from Jackson County. Yeah. Okay, yeah, he was he was farther southwest for sure. Okay, yeah, but it was fun. Now, what other questions? Did you, you you loaded like four questions in there, and I think I got to two of them. Did I get get what you wanted? Yeah, basically, would you learn and would you do it again? How would, was the lease experience? Let's say it sounds like maybe you got a deal this year. Let's say that well, lease was a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred bucks next year. Would you do I, it again? I, I wouldn't. I, I'm told that that was a um, a five thousand dollar lease. I was offered to go in there from gun season till the end. I can still go back there. It's late doe now. And my name's written on the lease and I can go back there and try and fill a doe tag or two. Um, I need to go spend some time on the range. Um, you know, uh, I, I've learned shooting is a perishable uh, skill. And uh, I, I just, I just, I'm just not spending enough time hunting anymore these days. And it's kind of sad, but would I do it again at that price? No. Would I do it again at what, you know, the opportunity that presented itself? Yes. I love to stretch my legs. Um, so no, I wouldn't go rent a uh, uh, hundred plus acres in Calhoun County for the, for the year for 5,000 bucks. No. Yeah. That but price, that's just me. And, and I know things are getting more competitive all the time, but that price surprises me. I talked to a farmer this year. I went, I had a Kansas tag by hunting public land, but I ran into a guy that was working some on the ground. He must've been running it from uh, either the state or whoever, whoever was, whoever the owner was anyways. He told me that they there they were leasing for fifteen bucks an acre. So if you had a hundred acres, you're looking at fifteen hundred bucks. So Michigan fifty dollars an acre. That's that's some big money. That I I find it insane. That's what I always thought. Fifteen bucks an acre. And and these guys started leasing this place a few years. Well, I said eight years ago. That's what George told me. And it was uh, it was four thousand back then. That's forty bucks an acre. And you know it's mostly it's mostly ag. So out of the hundred and I think it was 115 acres, if I remember right. Um, and you're really only leasing that, that river bottom. That's the thing in Kansas too. That a lot of those properties, even if they're, even if they're a whole section, 600 acres, it's so open there that 
you're basically leasing a couple tree lines or a creek bottom or something. And unless you get on a really premium property there, there's not much there. So your huntable acres, you know, even on a section, you might be hunting 80 acres or something. It, it, exactly. And and I, I just, for the price, no. I mean, I couldn't pass the opportunity. It was, it was a timing issue. It was an opportunity. I jumped on it. Would I do it again? I, if I were going to spend $5,000, I'd go elk hunting. That's my true love. I would never spend $5,000 to go deer hunting. Well, we're going to get into some of your Western trips before we do. If uh, you don't mind talking about it more, you said you had some shooting issues and that that's a perishable skill. And I think that's something that's important. It's happened to me before several times. It'll probably happen again where you have a good season or two where everything's going well, you're practicing, you're taking the time to shoot whatever your weapon is, your bow, your rifle, both. And then things get busy. You have a business that peaks during hunting season and, and maybe you don't get the reps in that you'd like to, or, or now I know your daughter's in college. So maybe you're spending time with her, you know, more, more often when you can. So with that said, um, maybe tell me what happened and what are you going to do in the future, hopefully to prevent that from happening again? Well, I, I, that's a great question. First thing I need to do is get on the bench. I mean, and I got on the bench before I left and, and I just bought a new gun this year. So after I got the lease and, you know, we had lodging on top of that, no big deal. You got to stay somewhere. Right. And then I started reading about that 360 buck hammer. Have you heard about that new round? I've heard of it, but I don't know anyone that owns one. It's a, uh, I own one. So, you know, me, All right. and, uh, <laughs> so I, I bought that just before gun season opened, like the end of October, I went into guns of galore, which is a very popular store in Fenton, Michigan. They used to be the biggest gun dealer years ago in Michigan. And now there's so many gun dealers. They probably don't own that title. Maybe they do. So I walk in to get three boxes of shells. I have a scoped H and R single shot, you know, that big, heavy bull barrel. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. I got one of those and it's always been a tack driver and I shoot Hornady. I think they're 385 or 350 grain. I think they're 385 grain. They kick per the box. They kick around 2,300. I've never chronoed it. And uh, so I had that gun. So I go into guns of glory and I said, Hey, uh, I need three boxes of the Hornady's. If you have them in two and three quarter inch. Yep. He lays them on the, on the counter and he says, uh, anything else? I said, Hey, you got a 360 buck hammer. Cause I was reading about it, the ballistics and it's a down here, you know, it's the, the straight wall rifle yeah. for Dallas, Southern Michigan. Let me see. And he looked around and I'm thinking, oh, shit, I didn't want to buy a gun. I just went in to buy three boxes of shells. He goes, wait a minute. We got one in the back. He comes out with it and I, he opens the box and it's a, it's, it's synthetic. It's not wood. I go, whew, I wanted a wood one. He goes, we haven't had a wood one. We've only had three of these and this is one of the three. And if you want this gun, you better take it now. I said, huh? I, I guess I'm buying a gun today. Yeah. So I'm, I pull out the credit card. So now I got to go sight it in. So I went, I went and shot it a, a week or so before season and it wasn't hitting right, but it just opened sights. I didn't have it scoped. So I got it hitting. I actually drove to the range on the way to go out there because I shot it, knew something was wrong. I didn't want to mess with it. Pulled out the scope gun. It was hitting fine. We were talking about perishable shot, right? If, I, if you need to bring me back where I'm going on this tangent. Yeah. And so I stopped at the range at Island Lake Rec area. I drove there, got the 360 buck hammer sighted in dead on at 50 yards. My last shot was right in the, and I'm like, I went out with confidence, but I don't know. I think it's almost like a golfer lifting his head to look for the ball before he hits the ball. I think I'm not following through. I think I'm, I'm, I'm pulling and looking for the shot. I think I'm pulling the gun. I don't know what I'm doing. 
I don't. And so I had a horrible shooting on, I didn't take a shot on opening day. I saw some deer, but nothing that, that I wasn't in. And I had to make a move. And then the next day I was in the deer and the first shot was kind of far. It was a walking buck, looked like a good rack. It was across the river. And I slung one at about 120 yards with open sights. And you're like, okay, I marked that. I checked it. No hair, no blood. I spent a lot of time over there, messed up over that area. Another one came in broadsided, hate to admit it, 80 yards, missed that one. And later that night, I set that gun aside, pulled out the 12-gauge slug gun, and I had, I'm had i facing across the river. They're still moving over there, even after all that mess I did in there earlier in the day. And behind me, a doe came in about 15 yards. I'm like, gosh, dang it. And I got my back to her, but I sense it coming in, and I'm buried in a deadfall. I'm not even in a blind. I'm right on the river in a deadfall. And I look over and there's three, four deer and the ones behind me about 10, 15 yards. I'm like, well, I'm going to get busted. And these I won't have to put the waders on for. So I looked and there was one behind me and I put the, I put the, the scope on her at 45 yards. I, I don't know how you missed that shot. I mean, I, I basically right now, my, I got to get on the bench. I got to rebuild this. I don't even want to go deer hunting right now. I've never shot so poorly in my life. Everything up in my 20s, 30s and 40s. I rarely had a miss and everything I shot at fell down or fell down within 10, 20 yards. I mean, and I forced a lot of shots and I, and it served me well. You know, I've shot a lot of deer, not a lot of big deer, but I've shot a lot of deer. I don't know what's going on, Jeremy. I, I do not know what's going on. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and cry a river and uh, go on the, go on the beast tonight and go, oh, what do we do? You know, I just got to, you got to figure this crap out yourself, you know? Yeah. So well, a lot of that stuff is like I said, time muscle memory it sounds like you had a new gun with uh maybe not as many rounds through it as you it, would like to it could be these things i that's, didn't used to wear these things that's a real issue too i noticed in the last year or two i've, I've worn glasses I, I probably started when i was like 18 20 um so my eyes were like borderline and the last year or two boy i've really noticed a difference so i mean these are just cheaters they're on me all the time i don't need them for the podcast i just i get on them anymore and i i, I used to fear that they were but i don't want to get into eyesight issues it could be that it could it, it could be just not shooting enough and it's form i think it's a form issue i think i'm looking for the ball i think i'm i think i'm i hate to call it flinching but i i think i'm i think i'm pulling a gun up i don't i'm i'm gonna fix it i just now that i have a problem i am gonna focus on trying to fix it how i'm gonna fix it one, I got to sit on the bench, make sure the guns are right. They were right before I left. Make sure something didn't get hit off. And then I just need to shoot more. Yeah. Any plans to uh, scope the buck hammer or no? Yeah, there's plans. Um, I do like the idea of having, like with my muzzle loaders, and down here in the south, you know, um, the, the southern zone of Michigan, because we're three zones. Yeah. Upper Peninsula is zone one, northern lower is zone two, and we're zone three. And this zone, the last few years, I don't know how many it's been, but it's been the last few years, muzzle loading is open to all legal firearms. So I was shooting, I mean, it's essentially, it's not a month, but you get 10 days of muzzle loader and you get 15 days of the regular gun season and it's all legal firearms. So it's not even a muzzle loading season down here. But what I was getting at is, I remember where I was going and came back. I have two muzzle loaders, one scoped and one's not scoped. I like having open sights. Because my game for years, not on the lease, but my game for years has been walking around and jump shooting deer. And I've shot a lot of deer that way. And I've shot deer with open sights to 130, 135 yards. And so I like the buck hammer. It had like, like almost like Williams fire sights on it. It's a Henry. It's a okay. Henry lever. Yeah. And it's got like those fiber optic pins, you know, yeah. I don't know that I need to do this for you, but yeah. <laughs> um, 
So, but so after my embarrassing um, trip to the lease, you know where I'm at here in Holly, Michigan. So I went up to one of the public pieces um, the next weekend and Saturday, not this Saturday, a week ago Saturday, I'm walking around in a public piece, had to do a little shipping on Saturday morning. I got up to about 930, took a couple mile loop. And I know that's not a lot of miles, but when you walk the way I do, it's very slow and quiet. And a lot of times I'll jump things. And sometimes I'm so slow and quiet that things will stand up and look at you. And that's when I shoot a lot of deer. I don't shoot them all running, but I've shot a lot of running deer. So at the end of it, I kind of let off your guard. And, and I tell people all the time, if you aren't completely exhausted from trying to walk quietly, you aren't trying hard enough. It takes a lot of effort to walk quiet. Now, we had a nice rain the night before, or I think maybe the snow finally melted off. But it was, it was just quiet. And I was walking around and I was finding some sign, but I never jumped a deer. And as I'm coming out, I let my guard down. I'm like, all right, I'm going to the truck. And something took off running. And when I, when I picked it up at about 40, 50 yards, it was a coyote. And I dropped that son of a gun on the first shot with that buck hammer with open sights. That's why I like open sights. And I'm like, oh, I'm back. I still have it. Then I went out last Sunday and embarrassed myself and missed twice, uh, twice more. But, but I shot a running coyote um, a week ago Saturday. I want to take a minute to mention HuntingBeastGear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. www.HuntingBeastGear.com delivers cutting-edge products, including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast Gear Climbing Sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2-pound package, including the fastening strap. HuntingBeastGear.com has also released the game-changing Beast Gear Hang-On Tree Stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution, with over four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear Stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, for that style of hunting, I mean, open sights are nice. I know a lot of guys now that shoot, like the, uh, they call them, uh, what is it? I'm going to mess it up. LPVO, Low Power Variable Optic which is basically the type of scope you'd put on an AR where it's like a one to four power or one to six power. So something like that for your style of shooting, that might be good. And, and, or guys I know will run like a two to seven, which is real common for a muzzle loader. but then there's these little red dots you can mount on top of the scope. So if you like yeah. the open sight feel, then instead of looking through the scope on something like where you'd be jump shooting, you have that little micro red dot on there and you just get the red dot on them and as opposed to the scope. So maybe some options but, to consider. But are you saying that the red dots on top of the scope? Yes. It, it, it mounts on a separate mount on top. So you don't, you wouldn't look through it through the okay. scope. So you got to pick your head up to get, see, and that's what I don't like about over unders. I had a buddy one time that, that saw a porcupine in a tree and he had his 30 odd six. And, and I looked at him, I go, dude, your scope rings, your scope ring, your scope covers are down, not rings, your scope covers are down. Yeah. And he shoots and he hits and he goes, I got an over under. Well, to me, that's not natural because you should get your cheek on that thing and get 
sight down that barrel or sight down your scope, wherever you're comfortable with. And I don't like the idea of picking your head up or laying your head down. I want to just sight plane right down that thing. And so I think I'd struggle with that, but I got to figure something out because the last few years, my shooting has gone downhill. Well, reps are your friend, Lou. Reps are, reps your, are friend. your friend. I'm, yeah. I'm going to work on it. I got, you know, it's, it's, it's bad enough. I went to, oh gosh, don't say crossbow. I went to the crossbow years ago because I really wasn't that good of an archer, but, um, but with gun, I, I, that's where I probably killed the majority of my animals, but, um, uh, uh, Hey, Hey, you know what, maybe being open and honest about it, you know, and going public with it, it'll force me to fix it. But I thought I was fixed when I hit that running coyote, but hell, maybe I got lucky. Yeah. I had a bad year, but it was, instead of with a gun with my bow, I, I missed, uh, and it's funny to even talk about because I ended up shooting an antelope with my bow. That was a 60 yard shot, you know, antelope, uh, a buck antelope is smaller than a, a white tailed doe. So pretty small target at 60 yards in Montana. There's no, um, a red fox isn't a fur bear and I've always wanted a fox mount. I think they're cool. So I shot a red fox and it was a young one. So it was pretty small at 30 yards with my bow, no problem. And then I, I missed several elk, uh, two or three of those weren't exactly my fault because they moved, jumped the string or turned, or there are some issues going on there, but, but at least one or two of them was my fault. And it's same thing. I lost a lot of confidence. I actually, uh, hold on here one second. I'm going to do a review on this. I got a new rangefinder because uh, I, I was having, a, I got a, a Leopold RX five full draw. So one of the things, and I knew this going into the season. So these are, these are post season lessons learned for me. One religiously every year for the last eight to 10 years, since I've had an electronic laser rangefinder, I always put a new battery in it. That's part of my preseason plan. I'd been shooting in my yard and my rangefinder had been working fine. So I didn't change the battery this year. So shame on me there. And I'm not saying this happened for sure, but I swear about halfway through the elk season, the battery must've been right on the edge of being dead. And I use lithium batteries in those because they last longer. And anybody that runs lithium in their cameras know they usually work right up to a point and then they don't. It's not like a alkaline battery where it kind of dies off slowly over time. You can see it getting weaker. It's like the voltage just drops right off. So I was starting to get some real erat erratic readings. And one of the things that I don't like about the rangefinder I have right now is it never did well in taller grass. And I hunt off the ground a lot out here, uh, spot and stock. So I would be ranging and in antelope season, I had the same issue. I ranged an antelope and several different times. And I even put it on the scan mode where you can hold the button down and it'll give you like real time feedback. And I was on this antelope and I kept getting like 50 yards and 80 yards. So that's a huge difference with the bow, right? I can shoot 50 yeah. yards. I can't shoot 80 yards. So I shot for 50 yards and, and I was 30 yards short, right? So, and uh, it's kind of funny. I, I've talked about this on another podcast too. One of the big things for me out West, and I've had some guests that have talked about it too. I think Jacob's cleaner when he was on was talking about how hard it is to judge distance when you don't have a forest where you don't have a tree of a certain size that you're used to, or even scrub brush or anything. It's just sage flats. I have a real hard time with it. So long story short, that's why I ended up with a new rangefinder. I, I should probably consider that as much as I like binoculars and stuff. I'm, I, I hate to call myself a minimalist, but when I go hunting, I don't take a lot of things. If it doesn't fit in a pocket, 
on an all day hunt, I'll take a small pack when I'm sitting in a blind, like I was on the lease, I'll take a small pack, but I'm mostly a pockets guy and a, and a bottle of water has got to go somewhere for all day. So I, I just don't carry a lot of things. So I'd love to say I'm going to get a range finder, but I don't think my range finders were my problem with the gun. Cause it, it doesn't really matter if it's, if it's 50 or 80 with a gun or if it's a hundred or 120, right? I mean, it should be similar. You should be only a couple inches off with something kicking 2,300 feet per second. You know, I'm not talking high power rifles. I'm talking the Southern zone stuff, my 12 gauge and that 360 buck hammer. Sure. So I think it's a form issue. I think it's a follow through issue. It could be the eyes. We're going to figure it out. You know, yeah. It's the follow through. That's a real interesting point too, because I had some issues. So when I first started bow hunting, I, I did great. I killed like the first 10 or 11 deer that I shot at. Everything was going great. I thought I had it all figured out. And then within the span of uh, two or three years, I wounded two or three deer. And I, I started figuring out and it was crazy to me at the time because some of these deer I wounded were like inside of 15 yards. How do you miss that? Right. Chip shots. And that's exactly what it was is I wasn't following through. And what I figured out is, you know, you were, you had your sights up earlier. I'll get my bow out. So <laughs> what I was doing is I'm a right-handed shooter. So my left arm is my bow arm. And as soon as I shot, I was moving my bow arm to the left and, and I was hitting these deer consistently on the ones that I was wounding to the left. And I started figuring out like, Oh, I'm, I'm rushing to see what's going on. Instead of watching the arrow flight through my pin guard and watching the impact, I want to see it. And yeah, that, that was and killing me. So, stuff out of the way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm lifting your head to find the golf ball. I've got a super, super simple thing that I say to myself all the time. Now it's, it's aim, breathe and follow through. Every time I see an animal, I want to shoot. That's the three things I just repeat to myself over and over and over. Aim at a spot, pick a spot. Don't forget to breathe and then follow through. Just watch the arrow through the pins. Don't, don't try to jerk the bow out of the way. And when I do that and I execute, I don't usually have any issues. I've struggled with archery for years and I always thought it was form. The first couple of bows that I bought in Michigan, I moved to Michigan in 1990 and I had a bow that a neighbor gave me and I killed a deer with it in Illinois, my senior year in college. And I moved up here and I'm like, <clears throat> it's really, it was maybe a 40 pound draw. I think it was a, a grizzly black tail. I've shown it to people before. I still have it in the basement. Um, and, and that arrow, like I hit a, I hit a buck fawn, my first deer. And, and I mean, the thing actually, when it landed in the deer, it, it was almost like the arrow was almost straight up and down. Did I have any business shooting 40 yards back then? I didn't know any better, but I hit it and I killed it. So then I move up to Michigan and I'm like, I need a bow. Guy set me up with a bow too long, or I bought a bow too long. Second bow I bought, I bought it from a reputable shop that's no longer in Lansing, Anderson Archery. And they bought me a bow too long. And, and so I never was, was set up properly, and I didn't have any mentors back then. I just picked this stuff up and started hunting because I wanted to hunt. <clears throat> and so, and archery, I've always struggled. And, and now, even, even, so I went to a traditional bow about 2018 or 19, I bought a longbow. Now, I, I hunt primarily with a crossbow, but I bought this because I'm, I'm intrigued by it. And sometimes I'll be complaining to a buddy, and they'll say, and they'll say well, shoot the bow. And I shoot the bow at 20 yards, which is, just pulling it out of the garage after you haven't shot it in two, three weeks and hitting two bullseyes in a row. They go, well, nothing wrong with your shooting. I'm like, there is, you just saw my two best shots of the year. Right. And I just felt it was formed. But sometimes when I follow through, even with that, even with that longbow, when I watch that arrow go right into that bullseye, you just feel it. And it's like, how can I not reproduce that? And I, it's form issues. And I now think I've got this 
And I solved that by hunting with the crossbow. Solved all, I don't give a crap what anybody thinks about crossbow. They're legal in Michigan. I've killed deer cleanly with them, <clears throat> whatever. But um, now I think I've taken that old archery form problem into gun. I don't know what, I, how do you mess with a scope muzzle, a scope 12 gauge slug gun that's on a, a, a deer at 45 yards? I mean, you'd hit that with your, with your bow. Yeah. Maybe not this year, but usually, yeah. <laughs> But yeah. I think I've been talking too long about how crappy of a shot I am. Hopefully you edit some of this out, but I don't care either way. Yeah. Well, I think it's an important discussion, right? And it's, it's a real world discussion. And I think the biggest takeaway for me, and it sounds like for you too, is you got to do something in the off season to get the confidence back, yeah. whatever that is, whether it's uh buying a new rangefinder. for me, it's going to be a lot more reps too. But the, the reason I bought that specific rangefinder, and that's something I, I didn't really talk about there is, that's got something called the last target feature. And my current rangefinder doesn't have that. And basically what it does is the software and the rangefinder will return the farthest object that the laser is hitting. So if it's hitting 10 blades of grass before it's hitting the animal, it'll, it'll rule those out and it'll return the farthest thing. Now I haven't got a chance to test it, but the reviews have been pretty good. So I'm excited to get that out in the field and put that through the paces in some real world scenarios before hunting season. And hopefully That'll give me confidence that when I range something, the distance that I'm going to actually shoot is the distance on the rangefinder because that was not the case several times this year. And, and boy, that'll, you know, you as a bow hunter, at least I do, you rely on that so much to, to, to choose the right pin and shoot the right distance. And uh, when it's wrong, it, it really messed with my mind this year. You, you, and what I was going to say earlier, I went on that mental list and whatever tangent I went on about shooting again, but I want to get a rangefinder. I, I, I was too stubborn for years. It's like GPS. I think GPS will make your um, woodsmanship skills go down. Kind of like speed dial made you forget all the phone numbers that you used to remember. Sure. Um, I, I think that rangefinder, I've resisted it for years. And I would just, you know, it's easy to pick an object that's about 10 yards. And when you're sitting there hunting, I would guess and estimate. And sometimes even people I was hunting with, we would guess, like, how far is that? And, then, you know, sometimes we'd pace it off because we're, we're, we're hunting out West, you know, how far is that tree right there? You know, and we're not just out there screwing around, but you know, then, but you're, you're, you're keeping your mind sharp by trying to, trying to guess yardage. And I'd love to get a range finder. I just fear it'd be like the binoculars and I wouldn't take it because that's where I started on that tangent that I'm too much of a minimalist. I don't want one more thing on me. Yeah. And I know you tuned into the show last night. So for people that don't know, I'm also hosting uh, Dan Infault's live show the beast report on his channel and last night we had chris leopard on from mobile hunters expo and he talked about shooting ibo and he doesn't do it anymore but that's something i might think about this year and ibo is kind of cool that's international <laughs> bow hunting organization or something i think is what ibo stands for but but they do a lot of uh unknown distance targets and it's targets of various sizes so it's real applicable to hunting scenario and that might be something that I practice, even if I don't shoot IBO this year, I might um, take my target out, you know, toss the target out, pace off something, turn around, shoot it, because that's something that, that I've noticed I've definitely struggled with, especially in the plains type environment where there aren't, you know, there isn't a pine tree every 10 or 15 or right. 20 yards. It's real hard to get a frame of reference for me. If, if you don't do IBO, you should consider maybe the, uh, the TAC, the total archery challenge. Are you familiar yeah. with those? I am. They, they go out west. Yeah. Yeah. And I they know they have, have shorter courses. A lot of times I, I, <laughs> I'm joking, of course, but 
I feel like TAC is a conspiracy from the arrow manufacturers because you see all these targets that are right next to trees with a thousand arrows in them at the end of the weekend. And, and uh, I have a hard time justifying when, when a carbon arrow now is $15 and then you got a, you know, broadhead. And if you're shooting lighted knocks, it's like, I don't want to shoot $30 into a tree 10 times over a weekend. Yeah, no, I, I get it. But um, he, I think Chris also mentioned that last night about the tack shoots. I yeah. It was part of that conversation. And I've been to some of the tack events here in Michigan, a couple of them, um, just as a vendor or visiting vendor booths. I've never shot it because I, right now I can't shoot a damn gun a hundred yards. I'm not <laughs> shooting a bow a hundred yards. Um, and I, I would never shoot a crossbow at an animal animal over 40. I did it one time over 40. And now that was with a crossbow that, that it was my first crossbow back in 2009. And I think when I chronoed that crossbow, it went a whopping 246 feet per second. So when people talk about crossbow, people are a cheater. I'm like, most of the people calling me a cheater shooting 300 feet per second plus. Right. And even with my new Parker crossbow that's discontinued, right? I think I spent $500. So I, I always get a kick out of these people shooting two, $3,000 pieces of equipment, calling me the cheater or lazy. It kind of grinds my cry. I need to get over it, but um, whatever. Yeah. Like, said, said it, it, it's, <laughs> like you said, it's legal in Michigan and, and I won't knock anyone that's taking advantage of things that are legal. I mean, I think uh, part of the reason I think this is just my opinion, why crossbows get a bad rap is because people do take longer shots and, and I'm not calling the, the kettle black here because I took some 50, 60 yard shots at elk this year, shot 60 yards at an antelope. That's my max range. That's, that's as far as I'll shoot is 60 yards. But if you know, you're sighting your, your Raven crossbow in or your 10 point, your two, $3,000 crossbow and you're shooting targets at 80 yards. Yeah. You can pound them in there, but the targets don't move. And, and I think right. you hit the nail on the head. Even if you're shooting three or 400 feet per second, you're still significantly slower than the speed of sound. And I think yeah. that's where crossbows get a bad rap is people taking those real long shots and, uh, you know, thinking because it's accurate to that range, it's not a gun, right? It doesn't shoot, doesn't no. shoot 2,500 or 3,200 feet per second. It shoots three, 400. And I mean, whether it's a conventional bow or recurve or right. crossbow, the longer your shot is, the more likely you are to have issues. It's just a fact. Out west, things are different. They shoot guys out west shoot guns farther. Um, obviously, bow ranges are farther. I, I'm never going to tell you that you shouldn't shoot your bow 50, 60 yards. Um, your own range is your own range. You should know what your range is. My range with my crossbow, I freehand, I creep through the woods. I'm not sitting on a food plot with a shooting rail. I was just on a lease with a gun and I sucked with it. But we do already covered that. But with a crossbow, when I'm hunting, I'm kind of still hunting. A lot of people don't do that in archery season. And I really enjoy it. Um, but I'm shooting. A lot of times I'm walking up on and, and or or when I'm still hunting, the still part, and they walk up on me, I'm shooting 20, 30 yards. Those, th that's my range. Um, well, I shoot 40. Yeah, I shot 46 yards once. And it, and it, it, it ended okay. I found the, I found the buck. But um, that buck had spun from broadside to running away while that arrow was in the air. And that was my 246 feet per second. And it went right next to his sphincter. I can say that, right? Yeah. And it blew through his guts and it heart punched him. So when I finally gutted that animal, the broadhead was indented into the heart. So imagine all that. And then it boom, heart punched him. So it knocked him down, knocked him silly. 
I ended up walking him down because I could tell he was hurt and finished him off. You know, he, he couldn't escape. He was so imagine getting punched in the heart with a broadhead, but the broadhead never really broke the skin. It just had an indention. So that's that crazy. Hurt. Yeah. That was, yeah. So I went, all right, I'm not shooting 46 yards because you just see what it did. Yeah. It just turned, what is that, 90 degrees? Boom. I'm like, wow. So when yeah. I hear people talk about shooting 800 yards with, I don't care if it's a two, $3,000 crossbow or not. But that's for targets, in my opinion. But there's probably guys out there that have killed them at 800 yards. But there's guys shoot bows 800 yards. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, the guys typically, again, I don't want to get off in like uh, hypothetical situations here, but, but it's kind of like gamblers, I feel like. You, you only hear when things are going well. Yeah. Yeah. You don't hear when things are going bad. You don't hear about the losing. You always hear of their winnings. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, that's, that's, that's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. Well, earlier, Lou, you mentioned if you were going to spend $5,000 on a lease, you wouldn't. You'd rather go on an elk hunt. I know you've been on a couple uh, Western trips. So talk about that. I think a lot of people are interested in going on their first Western hunt. Some of the stuff I've talked about. What'd you do? How'd you prepare? Talk about maybe getting the tag. Where'd you stay? You know, what'd you, what'd you learn on those first trip or two? I've been to Colorado two, three times. I've been to Nebraska once, Western Nebraska on a mule deer hunt once. I've been to Idaho on an elk hunt, Wyoming on an elk hunt, and Idaho on a mountain lion hunt. That is the extent of my Western experience. They were all memorable and fun hunts. In 94, my cousin got married outside Denver, actually in Boulder, and we went to the Maroon Bells with them, met up with them. We took vacation. We met up with them on their honeymoon after the wedding. And I'm like, I want to come out here and go hunting. And I was just getting into gun hunting. So I bought a rifle and I went out there. And my first two years out there, I think, were 96, 97. Knew nothing. Some people might even say, you still don't know anything. But I mean, I knew less than nothing back then. But I wasn't afraid to go. Um, I felt confident in my um, orientation skills, being a geologist. I knew how to read a map. My wife and I went out there, stayed with friends um, in Elgibel or Carbondale, right in that area down valley from Aspen Snowmass. And I just walked around the mountains with a gun. And I didn't learn a lot on those two trips other than I'm not afraid. And so people say all the time, what do you need? Well, you need a compass and you need to be aware of it. the best way to not get lost is to, is to stay found, right? Yeah. Don't get lost. So you want to be safe. You want to find elk. And, and you ain't hunting elk until you find elk. So be safe, find elk, hunt elk. And so we didn't get to execute that plan until 2000. I teamed up with my cousin Louie out of Minnesota. We went to Wyoming. I had a cousin in Lander, Wyoming. And on that trip, I was starting to dump some deer around here during mostly gun season, but I might have actually had another archery kill under my belt. But I wanted, I grew up reading Field and Stream. And I didn't grow up in a hunting family. So I'm, I was a basically a self-taught do-it-yourselfer. And um uh, and so when people say, well, what do you need? What You need the desire to go out west. And the younger you are, go do it. What's the worst you can eat is a tag. Colorado, my first two tags are 250 bucks. So then we graduate to uh, Wyoming in, in the year 2000. Me and my cousin Louie went, and we're pounding around the woods. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of elk out there. We're, in, um, we're on the backside of the Wind River Range from Lander, Wyoming. And we weren't seeing crap, weren't seeing crap. And one night it was pretty warm. It was September 20th. We had cow-calf tags. And we decided that we're just going to kind of set on this. We found a meadow that we really liked. And I was kind of 
it was kind of an L-shaped meadow, and I was looking this way, and he was looking that way, and this elk comes running by, and it's going to go right towards Louie. And I'm like, I wonder why he's not going to shoot. So I thought, okay, I cut one loose. He jumped up. I missed it because, well, we think we I missed it. He jumped up, and he had a 280 and uh, 280 bolt action, and he shot four times, and I think he hit that thing on a dead run three out of the four. Wow. He taught me back then, if I can teach anybody one thing, and I can't teach a lot about hunting, he said a couple things. Don't stop shooting. His his neighbor, Kenny Merton, taught him how to elk hunt. He said, don't stop shooting until they're on the ground. That was one thing. And the other thing, I'm like, cuz, you did pretty good because I ended up, he emptied his gun and it was still getting woozy and it was standing there with its calf. And I actually put a finisher in the neck and we counted all the bullets. And that's why I figured he hit it three out of four or I might have hit it the first one. But I said, cuz, that's your elk. But um, the other thing is when you're shooting through a scoped rifle or a scoped gun, if you leave both eyes open, if you can train yourself to leave both eyes open, your target acquisition is so much better. You're on that animal immediately, aren't you? Yeah. And I came home from that trip and bought a pellet gun with a scope, and I spent the summer in the backyard training myself to shoot with both eyes open. And it's just amazing for target acquisition with a, with a scoped rifle or any type of scoped gun. And that's about all I got. And then on, on that, that was Wyoming. Um, that was a huge cow elk. It was bare getting out of there. And it started snowing on us. People in Michigan, I'm going to take one more shot at Michigan before I, <laughs> I got to get this. In. Everybody in Michigan, and really everywhere you go, everybody's so proud of their weather, right? Oh, our weather, just wait 15 minutes, it'll change. And I would say, you never been out west, have you? Because we went from, from T-shirts when that elk was killed to a blizzard when we got out, and the next morning there were six-foot drifts. You don't get six-foot drifts in southern Michigan. You aren't waiting 15 minutes and weather changing like out west in the mountains. Yeah, the mountains are something else, and that's a, a good takeaway if, while we're talking out west. I've had friends come out and they're like, well, what's the weather going to be like? I'm like 20 to 200 or anywhere in between. Yeah. I mean, in September, especially September is kind of like late October, early November in Michigan. Who knows what you're going to get in the mountains? Like it, it's pretty, I don't know. It can change real quick. On, on weather, I'll skip over my, Idaho. I finally got an uh, elk in Idaho in 2006 and 2012. I did a mountain lion wolf hunt. Really cool. Didn't get one. And then in 2018, um, just before my 50th birthday, I drew a muzzleloader tag in Colorado and a friend of my little brother's had a ranch out there. So he put me up and he bordered the, uh, I, I forget what this, what the public land was, but I missed an elk out there with my uh, muzzleloader 20 minutes into that trip and never got a chance to redeem myself. But the weather is what we were talking about. So when I went out there, we were getting into the, you know, it's, it's, uh, when was that? It was muzzleloader. I think it's September sometime. And in the mountains, you know, it really cools off at night. But it was oh, yeah. mostly in, in the 30s. And the last day I was there, there was a neighbor to my little brother's friend that said, if you don't have an elk down in a couple of days, he was a neighbor. He said, come visit me and I'll give you some tips. And he said, and so where I was going in from the from the ranch, I was driving in his switchbacks and then getting into the public. This guy lived down the road this way. And he said, you just go a quarter mile down the road. There's a campground there and you go down that trail. And we, it was, it was in a big Valley. And he said, you walk that a mile or two and get away from any other hunter, which there was no hunters in that this morning. He said, you should see elk. And when I came out, there were some people at the campgrounds there and they, they started mentioning landmarks. And, uh, I went six miles that last day in and out so 12 miles in the damn mountains i was mostly running a trail but there was still some up and down and uh 
When I got back to my truck to drive back a quarter mile to where I was staying, it was 96 degrees on the last day. So we went from 30s of a high to 96 degrees. That's yeah. the way you don't get that in Michigan. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's exactly the weather that we had for opening weekend of archery elk here. I had a, a reservation. So in Montana, there's private lands where people enroll them for public hunting. So it's private land, but during the season, then there's two types. There's a type one, they're called block management areas. Don't ask me why they call them that. And there's similar programs in every state, right? Michigan's got hunter access program, the HAP. It's the same type of thing. But a, a type one block management, there's usually a sign-in box. It'll be a little wood box, looks like a mailbox. And you sign on a ticket, your name and your license plate, some other stuff. Put your ticket in the box and then you have access to hunt that. Uh, and there's some restrictions, so read the book. I had to, I had to yell at some out-of-state guys this year, but there's some some of them have special restrictions, and there's a block management book or the website you have to look at. But then there's another one, type two, and a type two you have to call and get a reservation because they cap the amount of hunters that are on it. So I had talked to the biologist this year in, in the region that I normally elk hunt, and they said, oh, early season, this one's good, but once there's some pressure, the elk get pushed out of there. And So if you're going to go, reserve early. Okay, so you know, you got to reserve these things a couple of weeks in advance. So I reserved and then opening weekend comes, it's 95 degrees. And, and I hiked out like five miles. It's probably the most miserable hunt I've ever done. Didn't see an elk and, uh, circling back to something you said, when you're elk hunting, you're not elk hunting until you find the elk. I tried six different properties this year before I finally got into some elk. And when I got into them, it was like you said, I was several miles from the nearest parking area. And I put on, I put on a lot of miles. I got a Garmin watch and from uh the first weekend of elk season to about October 12th our thing our season ended the 15th this year but I hunted till the 12th and uh, I had 230 miles on this year on on boots so covered a lot of ground and was in elk a lot but just that archery elk hunting's tough wasn't able to seal the deal you either need to get on someone else's podcast where they can interview you but you've had some really cool hunts in the last few years since you've been out in montana i mean even this year the pictures you were sending me and i know you missed a few elk but you had some incredible hunts oh, um, uh, unreal stuff this year i got some of it on video I, I haven't released a video yet and i thought about it what i think i'm going to do is i'm going to hold on to that footage because if and when and i hope it's next year or whenever i draw this tag again the area i was hunting was a draw tag i'd like to put it all together like a couple of year quest and yeah, but I got some I got some really cool footage of bugling bulls and shooting at some elk this year and just some crazy stuff happened. I had a great year. The action that you've had. And it's not like you didn't fill some tags this year. I mean, you didn't you get a mule deer? No, I didn't actually. So that this, was your buddy. Yeah, that my buddy got a really nice one. My buddy That uh, was a nice buck. Yeah, and it was a little unfortunate cuz we did we did a pretty decent video last year and we we're hoping to film again this year. So I had two friends out this year that I was hunting with my one buddy and the, the other buddy was solo because he's been out several times now and killed a couple nice deer. So he was by himself and he ended up shooting that. So I wasn't with him to film it. But yeah, that we thought when he first shot it, we were like, oh, that's probably like a upper 140s, maybe low 150s. And we started looking at it and kind of like thinking about the deer we shot. And they were like, oh, it's probably mid to maybe upper 150s. Well, long story short, when we finally got around to scoring it, it was almost 170 inches. It's like 168 and some change. Wow. Yeah. And about everything you'd want on a mule deer, except being real wide, it was pretty standard width, um, but really, really deep forks, really good main beams, really good mass, had two extra points. It was a seven by five. So super cool deer. Um, but 
I kept looking for something nice. Like I wanted to shoot something over 150 and I passed probably 10 different four by fours, but the biggest buck I saw was maybe 140. It was a cool deer had, uh, had a couple extra stickers off. So I, I got this white tail buck here. That's got some stickers off the G2 kind of looked like the mule deer version of that, but you know, four by four, but I don't know. I just, I gambled, uh, I gambled till the end of Lou and I, and I busted. <laughs> you know what? That, that, that's everybody's personal choice, right? Like yeah. when, when I go out West, I usually haul a freezer and I'm, I'm ready to pull a trigger and, and I'll deal with the repercussions. Like, um, on my 2018 Colorado elk hunt, it was, it was muzzleloader, do it yourself. I did have a place to stay. And the guy said, you can just run up my back road here. And so after our introductions and I got settled in, it was, it was two o'clock in the afternoon and I drove up and I got out of the truck and I almost stepped in bear crap, stepped out of the truck and right there, a big old pile of bear crap. So now you're kind of on edge. I mean, fresh too. So I'm like, all right, so there's bear around. So I get going up the draw. I got all loaded up going up the draw and I hear something rustling 20 minutes from the truck. Well, and I'm in this, I'm in this steep and it was rustling just on the other side, but it was in the draw. So it's got your attention, but you're thinking bear, right? 20 yeah. minutes ago, you almost stepped in bear poop and you're kind of walking a game trail. So cow elk jumps up. I had a either sex. Uh, I could shoot a bull or a cow with that muzzleloader tag I had. And everybody said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'll have to wait till I get out there. Imagine what mood I'm in. Um, some days I'm willing to pull the trigger more than others. So 20 minutes into the hunt, I blow a cloud of smoke and I miss this, this cow elk. Still can't believe it. I looked almost every day for like three, four days. I just kept going around there looking, you know, and after you get three, four days, you're thinking it's no good, but you just keep looking like, how did I miss that? Yeah. But anyway, when I, when the smoke cleared and I missed that cow, up stood this big old beautiful bull. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's pretty and tough. I on the muzzle muzzle smoke clearing like, yeah. Huh? So there's some, there's some, some truth to that patience thing, but I've never been very good at it. Yeah. I'm more a tag filling, take the freezer, fill the freezer. So if you pass a 140, that's what you, you were looking for bigger me. I'd rather have the meat. And I've been all over the map. The first year I was here, I shot a two-year-old mule deer with my bow because it was a fun hunt and I shot it off the ground from, you know, on inside of 10 yards. So yeah, different year, different tag. It's kind of like the crossbow thing, right? It's legal. It's your tag. Do what you want. And I'm not judging people that shot, you know, the, it was a, it was a tough year for mature deer too. And that's something I think a lot of people are aware of out West Wyoming and Colorado got it worse than Montana did, but Montana had a, a long late winter and the deer numbers this year were way down. And it seemed like, and I think this is the thing that happens with like the breeding age bucks. So the three, four five year old and older bucks, those are the ones that are really getting run down in the rut because they're the ones that are competing. They're the ones that are fighting. And I saw a lot of two and three year old bucks this year and, and hardly anything older than that. The buck, my buddy shot, and then we saw one other buck, but it was a three by three. I didn't want to shoot it, but that deer was probably four years old. Uh, the, the older age class bucks were just really, really few and far between this year. And, and older age class bucks are always less than younger age class bucks, numbers wise, primarily. Yeah, great point. Balanced properly. Yeah. But but you, you just said something, and, and I want to make a point that, and I have no problem with trophy hunting. I mean, I respect people that that can hold out and go for trophy animals, but for for the most of us. Um, we have hunting season to harvest the surplus. And I'm not using the word harvest because I'm afraid to say kill, but I'm just speaking in generalities. 
The hunting season is to kill animals before they die of starvation. They're a renewable resource. And so when you start talking about that, it's like, that's why sometimes if, 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 if you're to that level where you're chasing bigger and better, and I, I know you're, you're, I respect you as a hunter, and I have no problem with you being a trophy hunter, anybody being a trophy hunter, but some of these young guys, they get caught up in watching stuff and, and watching guys, and they want to be a badass hunter. And they want so much that their picture of them being a badass that they're unwilling to help manage the resource. And then Mother Nature does a kill off. And then and then what do we have? You know, and, and they could have honed some skill by yeah. killing animals. The only way you gain experience um, is by killing. You know, if you had to eat what you kill, you, you wouldn't survive. The, the eagle doesn't just prey on trophy rabbits. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so, so we, I, I like to bring a little bit of conservation and balance and resource management into these conversations because I'm not a trophy hunter and I don't have those tips and ideas to offer. You can go watch the Dan Infault stuff with you and, and, and others to go get all that. But, I mean, hunting has a reason and it's not for taxidermists to make money. Yeah, no, I'd agree. And I think uh, for me personally, and, and the reason I think is different for everybody, that's the great thing about hunting. It's super individual. And like I said, as long as you're operating within the laws, I don't care what anybody else does. Um, and, and I've shot growing up in Michigan. Trust me, I shot plenty of year old, two year old <laughs> deer because that's what there is to shoot uh, almost exclusively. Now we talked about, yeah, down South, there's some, there's some better hunting for some older age class and larger rack bucks, but you get into one and two, especially, and, and it's pretty tough sledding for big bucks. So I'm not judging anybody there. Um, but yeah, that, but getting back to your point and the point I was trying to make is I learned a lot hunting those deer. I learned, you know, when to draw my bow or whatever, a lot of track jobs. You learn so much from that. And I've said it a million times. I'll say it one more. There's no replacement for experience. And, and, you know, you don't want to cut your teeth on the biggest buck of your life. That That's a recipe for disaster. I mean, it can work out, but you're more than likely you're going to learn some real tough lessons if that's the case. Agree. Yeah. Well, Lou, we're, uh, we're running up an hour here. I don't want to keep you all night, but I got one or two more questions for you. So we, uh, we mentioned we had Chris Leppert on the hunting bees live show last night, and he talked about the mobile hunters expo, which I had heard of it, but I didn't really know what it was. So I learned a lot more about that. And I think you went to the Kalamazoo show last year. Is that I, right? I, I, that is correct. I did. Yeah. So he talked about some of the dates. Sounds like they're going back to Kalamazoo. So one, are you going to that show Two. Are you going to any of the other shows? I think you said you had one down south and one in Pennsylvania. I would love to be able to do all three shows. I'm probably going to do the calendar. I'll do at least one. Um, it's just that time of year. That's our busy season unless things change. Sure. Um, I, I mean, it's so easy for me to do Kalamazoo. Um, I would love to go do a show in Pennsylvania. We do a lot of business in Pennsylvania. Um, so Pennsylvania or Michigan, I'll probably be at. If I get lucky, um, I'll try and hit that Southern show, but I, I thought it was phenomenal. I didn't go in there with high expectations because it was a newer show. He's a newer promoter. But when I got there immediately, well, I mean, maybe you know this, but I do a lot of business with, um, I do a lot of wholesaling to uh, other companies, manufacturers in the mobile hunting market, right? Yep. So they're all there. So it's like all my customers are there. And then when they put that, Somebody was telling me there was less than a thousand people at that show. I still struggle to believe that because that Saturday was one of the busiest. So it was, I think, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday morning. 
Saturdays at any show, if you do a weekend show, a consumer show, Saturdays are always what I call big money Saturday. That's that's busy time. Friday night's usually date night, and Sundays wind down and get out of there. But but it was an incredible experience. I mean, honest to God, I never did more business, not by far, because I've done some very big shows, but I did more business at that show than I've ever done at a show that had 10 times the people through there because they put our audience in front of us. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say, smaller audience, but it's the exact target audience. I mean, maybe, uh, and not to get into business and that's not why we're talking about this, but just, uh, to make a point, if you got 10,000 people at your regular outdoor show, you might have five or 10% maybe conversion, but when you got your target audience and the people that use the, the products that know who you are, that know the reputation of stealth outdoors and you got them in, in one venue, then obviously it's going to be better for your, for your conversion rate. It, it, it was, inc- it was an incredible show. Um, I, it was beyond my expectations. Kalamazoo here, Dan kind of talked about it last night. I think he saw somebody either get robbed at a gas station or pulled. What was that part? I forget. Yeah. He, um, I think he, th- he talked about his room coming with a girl. I think he said, oh, <laughs> yeah. He had some nightmare stories about his uh, hotel room. Our, ours wasn't great, but um, I, I think they picked Kalamazoo because they, they found a, a, a host site big enough to, to do it. I haven't spent a lot of time. I used to travel all over Michigan back in my environmental days, and I thought I stayed in every town, and I could have swore I'd stayed in Kalamazoo before, but it, it didn't seem like I remembered it. But um, I would do the show again. I had no problems with it. They were even talking about camping out there. That was pretty cool. Some guys were camping. but And you even mentioned that you might even be thinking about coming back. It, it was it was the mobile hunting market. I mean, how could I not go? Really, I would, I'm would. i half tempted to not exhibit at any of them and go visit all three because I've got dealers at all these shows. Some, you know, A lot of our um, customers are, are uh, equipment manufacturers. They'll be selling our stuff. I don't even have to go set up a booth. I should go visit all three just to – talk to people and enjoy it yeah it sounded like something cool and for people that might have missed dan's show that listen to my podcast just want to bring it up so it was an interesting thing and i mean i like the and i haven't been to as many especially since covid but that's why i talked about maybe getting back because i i used to like to travel i got a friend that was in the the industry doing food plot seed i went to a few shows with him and and uh yeah it's a good environment it's a good place to meet people i like to see what are the new products? You learn a lot, you know, and I know they had some speakers talking about, uh, or Chris had, you know, like Dan talking about, you know, tactics and techniques, new equipment. So it's a great place with a lot of like-minded people and, and a good experience. Well, and the thing about a show is, and I don't want to waste too much time on this, but when you're a small business and so we're running a shop here and then when you go do a consumer show, you're running your store there. So you're getting ready all week for it. Then you're traveling to it. Then you're working all weekend and then you're traveling back. And it's, you you, you know, it just spreads you so thin. So I think they're going to, like Dan said last night, they're bam, 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 like three weeks in a row or three weeks in, in a month. Yeah. That's yeah. impossible for a small company. If you're a bigger company and you got, you know, you got 10, 20 people, you know, three guys go do this show and three guys go do that show and three guys go do that show. But for, for me to do those three shows, there's just no way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I got to give that some thought. Maybe I won't exhibit at any of them and just go to all three. <laughs> well, you got to exhibit at Kalamazoo, right? That's the, that's the yeah, whole turf. Probably. probably. Well, hey, Luke, uh, we've been meaning to do this for a while, so I want to say thanks for your time. You had a lot of good stories. You're a great storyteller, and that always makes for a good podcast. So appreciate you coming on. 
before we wrap up, I think a lot of people know already, but it never hurts to say again, where can people find if they want to shop some Stealth Outdoors products? Where can they find in and not only your website, where's your social media is at? Uh, stealthoutdoors.com is the website and social media. We, we should get better on it, but all the tabs to social media are at the bottom of the page. Okay. Um, but it's stealth outdoors. I think there's a hyphen on one and there might be a one Facebook, Instagram. We do have a YouTube channel with some tutorials. Um, but we, we haven't done ever since Gabby left, we haven't done a new tutorial in a while. I take that back. Uh, Nicole did some filming for us, but we got to get back on that. I, I found a young guy here locally recently that we're going to try and get some better content going. Um, we just been cutting and shipping and, and, and cutting deals. We got, um, I know you're wanting to wrap up, but we we've got some new patterns coming up for the next year. We're going to ATA. Um, there's some, there's a collab project with one of our product partners coming up. Um, a lot of exciting things that, 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 you know, that'll be announced in the near future. So, um, Feel free to check out our uh, Facebook and Instagram or uh, keep an eye. Um, if you sign up for our email alerts, we don't. We do new product announcements, which is once, twice a year on our email blast is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Or um, yeah. if we have a sale, you know, and, if, and if it's going to say in the subject line, sell outdoors having a 20% off sale or 25% off. You don't even have to click it, but we don't spam people. We don't go nuts on that stuff because we don't like being treated like that. So we don't do that. Yeah, some of those companies are out of hand where you get three emails a day. So it's good uh, when you're putting out a, a wide email like that, that you're giving some value. So that's good to hear. So sign up for Stealth Outdoors email list. And then hopefully, I know when you're a, a small, lean shop that it's hard to uh, wear all the hats. But yeah, it's hopefully you can keep up on the social media too. It sounds like you got some things in the, the works to look forward to in 2024. There's a lot going on right now. So yeah, keep, keep an eye out. We got some new patterns coming. Um, some of them, the deals aren't inked yet, but it's, it's, it's very likely to happen. I mean, we're close to production on it and something just popped up the other day with one of our product partners are trying to get us back in someone who blew us off a while ago. So I'm just going to leave that as a tease. There might be a fourth new pattern coming up, but uh, we'll awesome. see. Well, Hey, thanks again for your time, Lou and best of luck to you in 2024. Thank you, Jeremy. You keep it up out there. I love the whole going for broke thing. I can, I'm glad you went out there because I love it out West. All right. Thanks, Lou. We'll catch you later. All right. Thanks. Bye.